Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. Almost 25 years ago, Mark Frost and David Lynch got a head start on the new golden age of television with their series Twin Peaks. Looking forward to the era of The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men, Twin Peaks broke new ground as a complex drama of startling ambition, both conceptually and visually. It told the story of Laura Palmer, a high school homecoming queen, whose murder revealed not only her own dark secrets, but those of an entire northwestern town. In its fusion of director David Lynch's avant-garde sensibility with classic television traditions like the soap opera and the police procedural, Twin Peaks created a tone unlike any other scene on TV before or since, and it has amassed a sizable cult reputation in the years since it first aired. Its audience continues to grow, and now there's a deluxe Blu-ray edition of the series that includes not only all 29 episodes, but also the theatrical prequel, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, along with hours of deleted scenes and supplements. Both Fire Walk With Me and the pilot for the series were photographed by cinematographer Ron Garcia ASC, who received his first ASC award nomination for his distinctive work, Establishing the World of Twin Peaks. His other credits include Michael Mann's L.A. Takedown and Crime Story, The Gilmore Girls, Numbers, and one of my favorite films, the sports comedy The Great White Hype. He reunited with Mark Frost on Storyville and with Frost and Lynch on On the Air, and I'm delighted to have him here today to reflect on his role in creating one of the most iconic television series in recent history. Um, so let's start at the beginning. You know, in retrospect, you seem like kind of an odd choice for Twin Peaks in the sense that many of your credits before it were kind of hard-edged, fast-paced cop shows like Hunter or Crime Story, and Twin Peaks has a much warmer, dreamier look and tone. So how did you get involved with the series? I think you're, I think you're right. It, it, I didn't think I was going to be a candidate for that kind of show. Um, what I remember, which was a long time ago, I had just come off of Crime Story, and I, and I was doing a movie of the week, or was it a tour? It, it was a miniseries or a two-hour, and it had to do with uh, Martin Sheen, Emilio Estevez, Leah Thompson, and a, a film called Nightbreaker. And it was about the above-ground testing we did in Las Vegas, or out of Las Vegas, uh, above-ground before we went underground testing. And I, I was shooting that film, and my agent called and said, you have to go see David Lynch. And I said, what for? He said, well, he's doing this, this television pilot, and uh, we think you should do it. So they sent me the script, and um, I read it. And when I finished the script, I threw it down on the floor or off the thoughts of my desk, I went, what is this? Uh, what, 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 uh, why, why is my agent saying this? Because to me, it was Peyton Place in the woods. And that's all that was on the page. It had nothing to do with what you see on, on the pilot or on the series or on, on the television or on, on the uh, uh, feature. So I went to, to interview and I said, why is David, uh, what's he want to see me for? But I think... Um, I had 
finished or I, had some, I was doing something with propaganda films and so was he. And my name got around and my agent pushed him so I took this interview. It was the first time I met David and I remember Elephant Man. And I think, wasn't Elephant Man before Twin Peaks? I'm sure it was, yeah. I remember Elephant Man and Eraserhead. When I saw Eraserhead, I said, that's, that's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And, it was, and I liked it because it really did affect my psyche. But I wasn't thinking about that at, at that time. I, I forgot about how Eraserhead affected me. But I, and I knew that I, I loved The Elephant Man. Uh, it was so much different to what you would think David would do after Eraserhead. So I sat there and, and interviewed with him, and he just looked at me, and we were talking, and I had some, I guess my demo reel, he had looked at my demo reel, and when we got finished with the small talk and all those, the way the interviews go, he just kind of looked at me and he said, uh, do you have anything warm? And, and, and I went warm, warm, because I had, I had, uh, I think my whole big TV career at the time was um, Stingray for Stephen Cannell, um, Crime Story, and that and that was that was just about it for for demo reel. So I liked David a lot when I met him because he was the people ask me how is David to work with, but I always mention that when I first met him on this interview, I thought I was talking to my scoutmaster. <laughs> Because he, he's just this Midwestern kind of everyday Joe when he speaks to you as a human being and has no ups and downs about it, who he is and what he's trying to do, and uh, which I liked a lot. He's very comfortable. The only person that I felt that comfortable with was when I met Jimmy Stewart when I was 15 years old through a scouting award I got and, and uh, he presented it to me and I, when I met him I just couldn't believe what a kind human being he was in the first two seconds. So that's the way I felt about David Lynch. But I went I, uh, warm, warm, I, I, don't, I don't know. Then I, the movie I was doing was out in the desert. It was a um, period, it was supposed to be in the 50s and it went from the 50s, uh, Emilio Estevez played a doctor and Martin Sheen, his father, played, played him, himself as he grew up. And it was about vets and dying from cancer and radiation, poisoning and all that other stuff, which everybody was denying happened. So I, I told David, I said, well, and I forgot, I forgot about, I always jump up around, so you'll have to bear with me. I forgot that I threw the script on away from me and threw it in the trash or something and said, I don't want I don't want to do, I was doing a lot of movies, a movie of the weeks, but mainly movie of the weeks, cable movies. And, and uh, I said, I don't want to do TV series with Peyton Blaze. That's been done. And, uh, but I liked David so much, I, I just said, well, I have this footage, and it, let me go and get some transferred. And, it's, and it's, I'm in the desert. It's got some warm stuff to it. So I forgot the time involved, but I went and changed, went over and got a, a, a print of some of the dailies that I was shooting on Nightbreaker. And he comes over and looks at me and goes, yeah, yeah, Ron, he says, that's, that's warm. <laughs> and that was the end of our interview of the second time when I took it back and we talked. And he hired me. 
So uh, it, I, I was with everybody else. What am I doing here with with this David Lynch and and? But at the time, David didn't have that reputation. I think Blue Velvet was out, and and I after we interviewed, I went and watched Blue Velvet. I couldn't finish it. I just did not like it at all. And I went, well, that's not what this script's about. So uh, that was pretty much the uh, context of, of me meeting him and why I was being hired. I think a couple of years later when we did four projects, I think I reminded him somehow of um, Dennis Hopper because I was so enthusiastic about a lot of things and a lot of uh, of uh, areas within the psyche. I didn't know David, I never saw David's art, his painting. But we kind of, David's like, as everybody, as the actors say on the DVDs that they're doing, on the Blu-rays that are coming out, on the new, the new lost footage, all, we, the actors and some of the crew were interviewed for their DVD, and they were always saying, well, David really showed me a different way how to look at the world. And I was looking at that in my own way, and I think David saw that. And and I wasn't your typical cinematographer. I was all excited and full of uh, piss and vinegar. And, and uh, um, I think he liked the way I talked with my hands and stuff. So uh, I think that was one of the, the, the reasons. And, he, and it, it looked like he didn't think I was the cinematographer for the job. But he knew, I seemed to feel that he knew I was the right person to be on his set with him on this show. That's how he cast uh, Twin Peaks. And once he hired you, uh, I'm curious what the initial conversations were like. I mean, you mentioned Peyton Place, and obviously the series itself is not that. Um, it's, it's, I mean, that's part of it, but it becomes something very different. And I'm, different, and I'm wondering uh, when... He's, how or when he sort of started to articulate to you what the show was going to be, and, how, and then when you started to realize that it was going to be something a little bit more than just another small town soap opera. That's a, that's a good question, and and I have to honestly have to answer that. It seemed like I was shooting uh, Peyton Place all the way through the show, and David doesn't articulate to actors or to to me or to the editor. He has a different way of speaking, different way of trying to get you to where what the vision that he sees all kept inside David. He doesn't talk very much on the set. He doesn't go into detail of levels of the talking to an actor that will be an onion and start peeling the layers off your psyche, all that kind of stuff, which I used to do when I directed for about 10 years and <laughs> gave it up. I went, no, nah, this is... This is not my belly wick. So he would communicate with you about, now that I know that he's an artist, and I have to say artist, David's an artist, period. And filmmaking is one of his, his venues. And when I saw his paintings and his dark gray paintings, because uh, he was in into meditation and going into his subconscious and and those who resonate with that, there's a thin line. You either you either look at the the person who's who's explaining and, and resonates with you as a guru, or he's just another human being and investigating your own internal psyche. 
And so David would just kind of, uh, for instance, I was shooting this, on, it's on the title of Twin, Twin Peaks, uh, the title sequence on, on the pilot. And you're, uh, he wanted me to pan down this river and then lift, come from the river and go to that sawmill that's also in the, in the, in the show, uh, in the title sequence. So I would just pan, like in my usual pan, and get I, the meat of it was to establish and get up to the sawmill. And he'd go, no, Ron, let's, let's do it again and just go slower. It's a lot slower. And, and uh, so I'd slow down, I thought. And I'd, he goes, no, no, Ron, Ron, slower. So take three, I'd pan down there, and it was still too fast for him. And he, and he goes, Ron, Ron, Ron. And he comes up to me, he says, think underwater. I went, oh, yeah, that's the way I move. You can't move fast. And so I, he goes, when we got it done, it was perfect. He goes, perfect. So it's that kind of thing. And I think the actors in the, in the DVD says the same thing. He finds a way to get to you without a lot of, he does a shortcut without a lot of explanation. Just because he's got an image in his head and he somehow wants you to fit that because with david and why twin peaks was so different we collaborated on the visual truly the visual part of of the story where he would line people up like a picket fence i said david you can't do that this is television it's not it's all it's too wide you can't even see their faces no ron it's gotta just stay wide so, so I learned that in that film language that he wanted is that stay wide, and then when he really wanted to go into uh, uh, an, an emotion or, or part of the scene, when he got to that close-up, it was a close-up, because you were used to seeing wide, 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 then you're in for the tight shot. Someone asked me years ago in an interview, I think it was on the ASC magazine, uh, when I was doing... Uh, Crime Story, I just finished Crime Story. And they and I had just finished the pilot, that's right, and of Twin Peaks. And so it says, what's it like between coming from Crime Story, Michael Mann's Crime Story, like you just asked, and um, Twin Peaks? And I thought about it, and being in the Lynchian mood, um, I said, well, working with Michael Mann is like hanging on to a bullet train flying through the desert. Working with David Lynch is like being on a canoe on a still lake. So that's kind of my image of working with David. Where did you shoot the pilot? Uh, it was in uh, the Snoqualmie area, just right out of Seattle. I think it, uh, there's a small, we all stayed at the, cast and crew stayed at this uh, uh, Belling, not Bellingham. Uh, there's a small little uh, bedroom community right out of Seattle. And then it wasn't too far from there to Snoqualmie, the Snoqualmie Falls in, in Seattle. And how did the location influence the look and the tone of the show? I, I think he wrote it, he wanted a small town, a small town feeling and all of under the underlings of what the underground of emotions, what goes on 
behind closed doors in a small town. Isn't he different in New York City? I think it was just a, a his choice of let's put the, let's place it in the woods. Let's place it because they had the the drug deal underlining in the subplots of the script, and I think it was easier for the the drugs to be smuggled from Canada. So he stuck it up in the supposedly the imaginary town of Twin Peaks was up in the right hand corner of of uh, Washington. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think there was a lot of production going on in Washington at that time. And I'm wondering if that created either any logistical challenges or if, on the other hand, things were made easier by shooting in an area that's not a traditional filmmaking hub. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a we had some crew uh, that was shooting and they would shoot in Washington uh, and Oregon. And there was a, a few Canadians that would come down and be part of the, the choices of crew. Uh, we had a few Canadian Washington filmmakers, uh, but it was pretty open. It was, it was still wonderful, and it's kind of not that way anymore because everybody's there's so much shooting now in the world. Well, you'd go into a town and like the, the Marti Diner in the show, you walk in and go, well, we want to shoot here. They go, yeah, okay. Not like how much money and how who's going to be here in the crew. Everybody's so sophisticated now, or uh, or not sophisticated, but understand that a lot of money's being spent for locations. They realize that to build a set, and stuff it just gets around. In the last, how long? How long was Twin Peaks? Twenty five years yeah. ago. Even my wife, there was a commercial down the street, and I got mad at her because she goes, "Oh, they're down the street. I'm going to go down there and and." Uh, Say, look, you're you're taking my parking spot out to get a couple of hundred bucks. I went, you can't do that. you can't do that. That's you're you're the wife of a cinematographer. You're supposed to be part of the 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 welcoming committee and stuff. But we had that. It was wonderful to walk in and see the starstruck people. Um, it's it was kind of like when 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 you walk in and you go, oh, you're doing a movie. You're doing a it, it's kind of like a kid watching the circus come into town because all the trucks come in and, and they're waiting to see the star. They're not waiting to see Ron Garcia. <laughs> they're waiting to see who Peggy Lipton or the rumors, whoever they thought was in the movie. And uh, it was it was great. You you felt like you were um, part of a a traveling group that excited people to your craft. Do you remember if the schedule was the kind of typical accelerated TV schedule, or did you have a little bit more time because it was a kind of prestige project from a feature no, director? No, I, it wasn't prestige. I don't think it was prestige. David was a prestige thing, but, but this was a, a very tight schedule. We, it was a, David shot a lot of different angles, and he, was, he had a lot to do. And, and a lot to get done. And I forgot how long it was, but I know when we shot the feature after the, after the TV series, I think we did it in 38 days or something like that. And we shot over a million feet of film, two cameras. And it was nonstop. There was no lollygagging around. And David didn't even... Uh, he moved on when he got when he thought he had it. He moved on. He didn't overindulge, but there was a lot of scenes that, that was in the firewalk with me, and so it was 
when I was finished with that, I went, whoa, <laughs> that was a that was a TV schedule. I was like, what do they say? It's a uh, he had a champagne craving for on a beer budget. So, but but had a great crew, uh, and uh, everybody just worked hard, as as most crews do, and, and we just got it done. It was a lot to do. I didn't have. I'm not a really big time big time light guy. I came up from. Um, independence. I was a filmmaker myself. I got bit. Uh, I shot one film, and it wasn't even a film. It was a boat race. I had uh, fell into this. Uh, someone asked me, "Well, why, why, why don't you, why don't you come with me? I'm going to shoot a boat race in Lake Havasu." I did. We put it together. We got a. It was 16 millimeter. We learned to do the sound and edit and stuff. And I fell in love with it. I said, "I got to do this." So, but when I st- Left my my lucrative business not business, but my position at at uh, aerospace when I was a design draftsman. I just left it. I said I'm got to be a filmmaker. I was twenty six, twenty seven, and I had three children and uh, had a nice cush job at Lockheed, uh, and I just quit. And we all starved. But I, I just had to do it. So while I was making my films, didn't have a clue, uh, and I didn't have very many lights. So I learned to work with very, very little light, even when the film was, was uh, uh, I don't even think we had 100 ASA then. I had nine lights inside, eight, nine light inside the house with fiberglass diffusion coming through it to soften the light and all that kind of stuff. I learned from a gaffer I hired on two films before um, who you realize when you have to, the way I started, when you have to light, and my gaffer got sick on a, on a on my last show I did was an anamorphic uh, western in New Mexico, and we're going along, and I'm basically the operator. I'm just like the, and I always gave my gaffer a director of lighting on the credits. I didn't know what else. Now they're their chief lighting technicians, but but I gave them director of lighting or or lighting by as opposed to me taking the credit because I wasn't I didn't I was just shooting and producing and art directing and doing all that stuff. So so I I you I learned you knew more you learn more by just being on a set osmosisly and then you go back into your your archives of what you saw. And you try to reproduce that of what you liked. And I had some really good gaffers. Uh, got, I lucked out. So I started emulating them until I found my own style. But they were very little light. So in shooting with, with Twin Peaks, we moved very fast. Because I, I learned to kind of, especially in, in uh, it was overcast a lot when we shot the pilot. And so it was a nice soft light coming through the window. And of course, film handles the contrast ratios between the light and, and the shadow area a lot better than video does or, or digital. So um, I had figured that out, trial and error, and didn't need arc lights. And if I got an overcast day, I just go with it. What, what really taught me that I found out with David the way he directs and the way he makes his film and how he makes his film is he brings the whole environment of, of the nature around him 
or or just life itself. If, for instance, when the um, there was a scene when we were really under the gun, we were rushing. I think we were two weeks behind after the third day, and they and and Dave, David and Mark Frost were going through. Just, they 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 changed the whole script while we were shooting. They saw it developing into something different, and we shot the script, but it was it was the ghost of what I threw in the trash as we as we were shooting um, and if 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 there was light coming in or the sun came out it I didn't panic because I saw David not panic when we were rushing to go do this one scene and we were behind way behind and there was supposed to be this deer head on the wall in this office and the the prop guy was gone who had hung it on the wall and you could see where the wires that held the head, the, the plaque was still there and the head was on the table and it had fallen off. And the wires are sticking straight out and, and we walked in there and, and to rehearse and the prompt man comes running and says, oh, David, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And it fell off, but I'm gonna fix it. He goes, no. He said, no, let's just leave it like that. He needed the whole scene with this deer head on the table while Cooper and, and Kyle uh, did this scene. And a secretary comes in to say something. She looks down at the, at the deer head. They look at it, and they just go right back into the conversation. So things like that help me realize you don't panic, you just make, make it work. And, and if, if that's what nature is giving you, or whatever you want to call it, circumstances, or just life itself, you just go with it or use it or go around it. It's kind of like, he never said this, but I, I felt it's an old prov proverb of water is strong by being weak because if it hits a, an obstacle, it just goes around it or over it or under it. So you just kind of go with the flow, so to speak. Well, I don't know if it was nature or if this was by design from the beginning or what, but the show has a great palette, like the oranges and browns and the whole color scheme is just beautiful and very inviting. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came up with that and you know what, you, what your thinking was in terms of the uh, use of color on the show. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't even have answer the question you asked me before this. Uh, it, it's being in Seattle, there was a film lab there and David said, let's, let's shoot some tests uh, for the, the color of, of the, uh, the show. And he said he wanted it warm. That's all he had said, warm. It's kind of like think underwater. He was just saying warm. I had no idea what warm meant. So I shot a, shot a few tests of the, of the area, the different lighting conditions, took it to the lab, and I forgot the name. I, I want to say Acme Lab, but it wasn't Acme Lab. It was something with an A. I, it's been so long ago, I apologize. But uh, so I, we souped it, sat down with the, the color timer, and I kept having them dial in some some uh, some warm colors that take the blue out, and it was subtractive printing, of course. So uh, we were. I was looking for a warm orange, not orange. I think David. I don't know if David said orange or not. I might have. I might have conjured that up because he said warm. And but so I wasn't getting that tone. Somehow it just wasn't. No matter what I dialed in or how I exposed it. Um, so David says, no, Ron, he says, it's gotta be warmer. So I called up, I was shooting Fuji, 
uh, at the time, and I've I've shot Fuji most most of my career, um, and I asked the, the technicians at, at Fuji. I said, I'm looking for a a yellow a yellow in in the in the orange scale of the reds with red, but I don't like red red. I never I didn't like the Kodak red that I was getting at the time, and uh, I. So what, how can I get a yellow in here without, without having the filters in, in, the, in the printer? And this one, this one technician uh, who was a film designer said, why don't you just double the 85? So I put two 85s in the camera and shot this stuff, went to the, to the lab and got it. It got my yellow in there and it got really saturated with, the, with the, what you see now. If you if you've seen the original print, you'd see the color David really liked and wanted. It's all translated different on television and different television sets and so on and so forth. But I liked it, and I said even make it more. And the printer was going, oh no. He said I'm we're I can't. I said yes, you can more. It's just like David was telling me slower. I started telling. I said, "Just keep going with the with the, the, the deeper on the uh, on the on the orange, and keep that yellow in there." So we played with all the different subtraction filters and came up with the things. And he was just apoplectic. He just thought he was going to lose his job. So we invited David down. We put it in the screening room, and David's looking at it. And he goes, "That's it, Ron. That's it." And that's how we, and what it did basically was with those double 85s into the, the negative, it, it, uh, um, it contaminated the black area to a point. But once we put the contrast in, that kind of went away, but it was still in the, the shadows. So people expecting a lot of cool looks in, in the wintertime, even the overcast, it, the skin tone stayed, I could control the skin tones, and it just permeated all the the greens and browns into this gold kind of golden uh, uh, field that we we all liked. And it was, I think, it was the that particular time of the uh, in, in my career. The Fuji was giving me those kind of colors, and Kodak wasn't for some reason. So. That worked out, and I think one of the other reasons now that that I'm trying to explain on a radio uh, or an audio what a visual looks like, the way the the film was constructed, the way it was designed in the in in uh, color couplers, that the only way if if whoever listens, if you open up your hands and spread your fingers. And then put your fingers together and form a little wall, like uh, uh, you're reading a book. There's no gaps in between your fingers. That was the way Kodak's system worked, as far as I was concerned. Fuji, you open up your hands and you spread your fingers out, and you can see light through your fingers. That's the way uh, the Fuji worked for me. So there wasn't a lot of crosstalk with with all that light going through all the layers of film, your red, green, your blue, green, reds. And I was able to pull in that yellow and keep that orange and keep the skin tones just because of the design of the film, which I loved and stuck to most of my career until 
we went to digital. Right. Well, you know, talking about the skin tones, one of the things re-watching the pilot recently I was struck by was just how great the actors look on this show. I mean, everybody just looks gorgeous. And, and I was wondering, you talked a little bit about your kind of lighting style, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on whether or not you have a kind of lighting philosophy when it comes to lighting actors and if it's if, if you have sort of overall rules that you, you you stick to or does it change depending on the nature of a project i mean would you light people differently on twin peaks versus say you know hawaii 5 or or hunter like shows that have very different tone and style yeah that's that's a multi-leveled question to me and i'd have to give you multi-level answers the first thing that comes to my mind is the best thing to do that I learned to do was get a really good gaffer because they're they're the ones who, as my job is to David in a film language to help him tell his story visually, so does the gaffer with the cinematographer. There was two different gaffers. John Buckley did the firewalk with me and uh, Jimmy Blair, who was uh, Vilmos Zygmunt's gaffer for years was a friend of mine and I had met him through different uh, operators and stuff and we became really good friends and I begged him to come to television and, and help me with this show. So he understood what I, what I wanted, but I still, as a cinematographer, the gaffer takes the pressure off you finding the right instruments to get it done within the right time, the right, the right dimensional space that you're in and you and the gaffer, the cinematographer and the gaffer have to be in sync. And you, after working along different times with gaffers and cinematographers, you get a language without too much dialogue, as David Lynch does with his actors. With Joan, Joan Chen, uh, there was a shot, one of my favorite shots, uh, still today, I still, when I look at my old demo reels, and I put my... Twin Peaks back onto my my website because I just love this pan from there was a kind of a 20s deco black panthers as a base for a lamp camera pans off that onto Joan Chen and she's looking in the mirror and she's got this dark dark hair and and with this filter system it made her skin yellow almost yellow not too yellow but everyone's saying you can't put yellow on an Asian a woman. You're, and I said, but look how beautiful it is. And so after the dailies, we, we had a tap, but it wasn't like it is today when you're, you're judging everything with a monitor now and digital. So when, when we saw it, I went, ah, oh, I, just, I just love it. And each actor has a different characteristic of this, because uh, I sculpt now, I'm a sculptor. And when you're looking at your live model and you're sculpting, you're trying to render and, and repeat the shapes that you see in the planes of faces, bodies, and because uh, uh, one of the reasons I sculpt, I'm only kidding here, but not really, is I have their nude models. And, uh, and it's just a, and the human body, male and female, is amazing when you start sculpting, you start realizing how we're put together. But the way the light falls on these people, every actor has a different way of being lit. And so it's almost like synchronicity. You, you get an actor, you get our actors, a group of actors or a single actor, depending on the shot. You're in an environment that's been designed by the production designer. 
If you're on a location, you're at the mercy of the way the set was built, the way light bounces, and different actors can can respond to that kind of light, and you kind of mix it all up in a salad and say, okay, I'm going to have this light for X amount of time. This person doesn't, this woman doesn't like light coming from her left side. She's got something, makes her jaw look bigger. Uh, her eyes need to be filled. There's uh, the planes of her cheek, above her cheeks, where it goes from the level of your cheeks into the eyes. Sometimes they're deep and the angle's deep. Sometimes it's flat. Joan Chen's was flat. So you use that. You you look you look at her. Some I don't know how other cinematographers judge that, but I when I'm watching the the uh, uh, the rehearsal and I'm and you're calculating. It's almost like playing chess. You have to be thirty moves ahead of the game if you're going to win the game. And my game is to get get the image as that augments the story within the next amount of time. And I've learned that if you can do it and give the director freedom at, rather than having to light every single shot, and you kind of, I always found out because of be, be, having to be uh, faster in television, that the wider you light, meaning the light's further away rather than bringing and encapsulating the actor, unless you're, there's something really special with the scene and you're, you know, the whole frame is two eyes and a nose. You try to pull everything, I try to pull everything back. And you, I look at not only the movement of the actors, but how I'm going to continue that look with all the different reverses and stuff. And so all the actors, it's not so much that I change the, the, the look of the show because the actors, story does that because we're storytellers and and cinematographers are augmenting the story itself or what you think the story is and what you see the actors are doing i was totally wrong when i was doing twin peaks because i had no idea it was where the the direction it was going and the humor of the tragedy that was going on and and the absurdity of some some of the stuff I, i i was so busy just trying to get the schedule i kind of didn't pay attention until I saw the cut of it, and I went, "Oh, that's what that's what I was doing." <laughs> well, it's it's amazing when you talk about how you know quick the schedule was and how you know how little time you had. Everything the show is so meticulously crafted. And another thing I like about it is I really like a lot of the bold choices that you and Lynch made in terms of your lenses and the camera movement. I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit before the kind of slow, dreamy quality of some of the camera movement, but also you guys, I feel like, used wider lenses than I'm used to seeing in TV from that period. And I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about, about those choices. Yeah, I, it, it, it's true. It's a, you have a good eye. It, David loved the 10 millimeter. We didn't have a 10 millimeter on Twin Peaks, I don't believe. Or if we did, we rented it for a day or for a shot. Um, we were basically on a on a 14, the widest, ma- mainly an 18. I don't think we are. We hardly. I hardly ever used a 50 millimeter. But David just had this idea that he looks. He looked at that television frame because he's a, he's an artist and and he composes and in in, in in his other art. So the 133 aspect ratio of television is was great back in the 20s and 30s, the 50s, 20s, and 30s, and 40s. 
until it went to the 185. That changed, everybody got upset about the 185 for a while because everybody was trained to be in the square. And how do you, how do, you do that in, in uh, a cinematographic view? And, and I, my theory is film, when it was, de was developed, uh, no pun intended, but when, when film was developing into a medium of people going to the movies, th it was placed in these theaters that were stage shows. They're square. If you look, you looked at a lot of these movie palaces, they were in a one-three-three ratio because one, it fit the screen, and two, people were used to that kind of composition. And who broke that plane was Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, with the really wide angles and the low angles and the movement and up close and pulled you out of that proscenium. But David still has an had an idea, which I believe, we never discussed this, but looking at the, because of this interview, I went and revisited and looked at all, all the stuff, including the hundreds of clips that are on YouTube now. I was, I was so amazed on how big a following people are with the, with the Twin Peaks. So I think it was a combination of David's putting that together. I'll, I'll digress, I'll, I'll do a, a flashback while well, remind me that I'm on the 133 subject. But when I was, we were working together talking about Firewalk with me over at his house, he was a bachelor then, and it was a, the house was basically empty except for the furniture that he designed and built as one of his other art projects. I'm going through a pantry part of his house there in the Hollywood Hills. He had a pantry that went into the kitchen, a walk-through pantry from the living room into the kitchen, and there was a, a box. And, it, and when I stopped and looked at it, it was painted crimson red in this high lacquered crimson red. And uh, it was in the shape of a theater. Inside, there was lights inside this box. And inside this box, which was about two by two maybe at the most, was a dowel into it, into the stage floor. And on top of that dowel, if you can imagine, was a piece of like uh, dough, dough uh, clay dough, or just dough, period, just flour and water. And it was kind of in the shape of a face, but I couldn't quite see the face because it, it had been honed out and there was a, a scoop in it, like you took a little, little spoon and scooped this thing off of this round piece of dough. And there were wires coming down from the top of this dowel onto the floor of the percentage of this little box. And next to it were a series of photographs in sequence of this box. And I think there must have been 20, 36 or... And what had happened was I asked David, I said, well, David, what is this? And I didn't really, could, there was, the lights were kind of dark in the pantry. And I couldn't really see the photographs that well. And he goes, oh, he said, oh, that. He said, yeah, that was, uh, uh, I had ants in my kitchen. And they were this trail going through, the, through my kitchen top in the pantry uh, shelf. He says, so I built this and I put a piece of cheese inside this dough and set it in there. And the ants stopped going across the sink and went into my box. And he took a series of them discovering the cheese inside this ball. 
And, and he looked at me with this smile and he goes, Ron, it took him a long time to find that cheese. So here was his presidium and he has those viewpoints. And I think he subconsciously took that 133 and looked at all the other television shows that were talking heads, still are today half the time, except the good ones. He said, I don't want to do talking heads. I want to do theater. And I think that's where the concept came from. And, and it worked out that way. Um, didn't like a lot of movement, wasn't a lot of dolly, except when it was, I don't think the pilot had a lot of steady cam in it, but the feature did, because there was a lot of more things and uh, lore going through all these different dream sequences and stuff. Um, but it taught, it taught me from that bullet train of Michael Mann, I was ready. I said, David, let's put this 250 millimeter on and we can do this and we can do that. He goes, slowed me down. Said, no, no, Ron, wide. Just keep it wide. And, and, I, and that kind of discipline and the, the way the actors got it also was hard to do and hard to stay in honor, honoring that, that kind of concept. But I think David did really well in rebinding us all. But he never said, Ron, I'm in a one three three format. I, I'm on a stage. This is television. I don't want to talk. He never said that. We, we just followed him. He just had a way. He was like the Pied Piper. He just had a way to play that flute. Um, I wanted to ask you about a sequence that was shot. There's sort of, you know, as fans of the series know, there are two versions of the Twin Peaks pilot. There's the pilot that aired on ABC, and then there's one with this sort of extended alternate ending that uh, I gather was released maybe theatrically in Europe or on video in Europe, and it was released on home video here. Um, and I was it's a very kind of strange, cool sequence. Um, and I was wondering how that came about. When did you know you guys were going to be doing that? Was that something that was planned all along, or did it come up after the fact? Well, I, I found out about it after the fact. We, as I said, we were in... We were behind two weeks after the third day of shooting, so to speak. And, and uh, we were running and gunning. We were shooting at this, I believe it was the high school where you see uh, uh, Laura Flynn um, sitting there and, and the, the boyfriend and snapping the pencil and the girl screaming outside um, and the, the police officer coming in and saying, can I talk to you? And, they take her outside, and that scene happens. By the time we got to that, that was nighttime, except we shot the girl running through the window, and that was about it. Sun goes down, and all the rest of that was basically uh, all interior lighting. We, I closed all the shades, just bounced some uh, lights into the wall, and gave it a gave it a daytime look. But <clears throat> it, all of a sudden, it was announced to us we had one more scene to do. We thought we were going to go home. And um, so we have to go shoot Bob down in the, in the basement. I said, Bob down in the basement? They said, yeah. And they, and they didn't say anything to us. They said, we got to shoot this scene. And that was the ending scene to the European contractual agreement, which I didn't know about. Uh, and they were reminded, I hear from the stories afterwards, that they had forgot it also. And but they had to, the, they got the funding from a European 
distributor, which gave them total creative control from the network of ABC, which they loved. And, and if ABC, ABC at the time or the networks at the time, which is even now, to my opinion, a little worse, there's too much control from networks. They they nitpick it to death and they they sit in a room and go, oh, let's do this, let's do that. And they're not there with the filmmakers. They're not there with the actors or the director. So it, had, it, it was kind of starting and, and Mark Frost and David Lynch knew that. So they contracted, uh, which I found out later, that they had to do an ending for a European. It had to have, it couldn't, they wanted to, uh, or ABC wanted their, their, their money back if it didn't go to series as a two hour movie. So it had to have an ending. And I watched the interview with Mark Frost on, on um, uh, YouTube when they were talking about this. Uh, and they had to compress in three minutes wrapping up a complicated loose end story of Twin Peaks that was designed to have a lot of loose ends to go into series. Not only one or two, but multi-plots going into that, into the series. So we went down there and David, and, and uh, I think just made it up on the spot. They had, had kind of an outline. And I remember down in the furnace room of that school, uh, we put a couple lights in and, and uh, the can those candles in it and Bob appears and and I'm and I'm still lost. I'm still going, what am I shooting here? What is this? <laughs> as as the, the way Twin Peaks went, no one, including the actors, knew what was going on. I think Jimmy An uh, Anderson, is it J not Jim Anderson, the man from Another place. Right. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on Anyway, it's Anderson. Yeah. Anderson. This, the scene was so eclectic and n nothing made sense to any of us. And the, the, the actress would say, okay, you're going to do this and, and it's, it's going to be this, right? What was before the scene? What was after the scene? And I, I as the, the cinematographer, had the same, wow, what is this going to cut to? Do I have to worry about it? They go, no, this is just the scene, David would say. And because I think he just wanted everybody to concentrate. And, and so on that moment, he was a at the moment kind of guy when he was directing. And it all turned out the way it turned out. So it was, a, I think we shot that whole thing in about an hour. Well, something that keeps coming up is this idea that you, you didn't necessarily know what the show was going to be while you were shooting it. And I'm curious when the first time was that you saw the finished version of the pilot with with the music, you know, everything put together and what your reaction was to it. Well, there, there, I have a, a funny story about that. We finally were all invited to the pilot screening. I forgot where the screening was. And my, and my wife is uh, and was then a uh, story editor. And she had worked, her, she worked herself up from uh, producing in WGBH in Boston, came out and went to AFI as David did, and learned story and all this stuff. And she and I used to have arguments. I said, you can do a whole movie without any dialogue or structure. Movies are movies. And when 36 years later, she taught me a lot. So, um, so we're sitting there and watching this movie, and the scene came up, and the, here's this heavy Belmonte music pounding, and 
stuff and and uh, Grace, uh, Laura's uh, Zabrinsky, Laura's mother at the in the play, she gets a phone call, and then the she cuts to the phone dropped, and there's a slow pan down, down the, or the the father drops the phone, and here's Grace screaming on the other end of it. Oh my God! Got halfway down that court, and my wife just started laughing out loud because it was just hilarious. But everybody was thinking, "This is because we didn't, we didn't have a clue where this was, the direction this was going." From and then after that, everybody lightened up and kind of enjoyed the art that David was trying to get you in and out of, as far as. Uh, absurdity and funny uh, light coming with Mark Frost's contribution, a unique film. Because it, it wasn't until then that I understood what I was shooting. Because my wife's laughing, just said it all. Were you surprised when the show became a kind of cultural phenomenon the way it was for a while? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I was I was surprised when I, I think I got interviewed on, on tape th- three times for Japan. Japan just went goo goo or gaga over over that film, and there was a time where group came over to my house, and it was and, and they were so had so many thousands of questions about every single frame, and and I'm going uh, what 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 what, and they and this this woman in, uh, she was interviewing me, she goes, there's a shot of a traffic light. And, and swinging in the darkness. And what, what does that mean? What did David tell you? What was that? And I, and I, I made, I don't know, I, I, I didn't know what to say. And, and I said, well, I'll tell you the truth. And, and this is how David's movies get, I think, is, is unique. We were shooting in front of the Marti Diner somewhere, and we had to hurry off and go rehearse and shoot something at night on on the fast television schedule and the wind was blowing and that thing was blowing in the wind and David looked up at that and he said Ron uh, have Sean Doyle who was the camera operator and very dear friend of mine who is no longer with us so I left Sean there because he's an incredible cinematographer on his on his own merit never wanted to be a DP just wanted to be an operator I kept trying to force him to be an operator no no I'll just stay an operator. And uh, he was an Irish, red beard Irish man, so, yeah, red blonde beard. Anyway, so I said, shoot shoot the traffic light, a couple of different stops, and, and uh, uh, we'll see you on location in about a, an hour or so. So Sean sat there and being a really good DP, he shot it till it got absolutely black. And, then, and what you see on the film is just those three Red, green, red, yellow, green, right? And and uh, blowing in the breeze. And it dawned on me when I was talking to her that David really liked that because rather than, because there was the mountains behind there and, and I would have picked uh, uh, one of the shots of, of the, the traffic light at about magic hour. So you could see the mountains, you could see a little blue of the sky and and have a have a composition to it. Dave liked it, jet black. You might as well have taken it and hung it in a black room and swung the thing and then shot it. But it was real, and um, the blacks 
turned out to be really amazing against those three traffic lights. And you could kind of feel the shape that it was a traffic light. And that's what he picked because it, there, it was different than anybody else would have chosen. The rest of the series was shot by Frank Byers. And I was wondering, was, was there ever any talk of you uh, staying on as cinematographer for the series? Or was that something that you didn't want to do? Or were you doing other things? Yeah, the, the <laughs> I chuckle because I had a premonition. Uh, when we finished the pilot, David calls me up and he says, uh, could you come in? We're, we're shooting a red room. We're shooting a, a scene that's going to be in the pilot. And we'd like to have you come in and, and shoot it for us. Because I think they, they asked me, that they, they assumed I was going to do the pilot. And I assumed I, uh, the series. And I assumed I might do the series. But I hadn't really done a full series at the time. I just, I think I did five episodes on Hunter. And, and uh, well, I did, what am I saying? I did 22 of them on um, uh, Crime Story. So uh, I said, sure. And, I, and it was at the studio that they were going to do the series. At. There was just a warehouse, a tin-roofed warehouse that got very hot during the summer. And we were in that red room for almost 20 hours. And I got an inkling that this is the way the series, which it did, very long hours, I took a pass on it because I was still, I, it was, there was a, still a lot of movie of the weeks and features to do. And, and uh, I think I did the feature. No, that was, that was another story. That was a different feature was, I did Twin Peaks, the, the feature, and then Mark Frost's feature, story, uh, Storyville. And uh, that was when I think Diane uh, Keaton called me to do one of her shows because we'd worked together on an ABC after school special. And I told him, I said, I'm just too tired. I said, you don't want a dead cameraman on your show. And uh, she got Janusz Kaminski. And he went to the top right from there. I said, gee, I could have gone. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> so what a great cameraman. So it, I, I just, after the experience of, and I loved what he was doing, but I just didn't think I wanted to do that for a year and uh, tried to gracefully excuse myself and move on. I have a, a, a quick story, if I may interject, um, on the Red Room and why it took 20 hours. David wanted, of course, the scene to be shot backwards. For some reason, I didn't know you could run the reverse, or maybe you couldn't at the time, the Panavision camera in reverse at 24 frames a second. But I think you could but I didn't realize that. No one told me that. So I said, uh, reverse. Well, what we can do is, why don't I turn the camera upside down and we'll, we'll shoot it backwards. Uh, so we got the Panatate. That's the 360 device that you put the Panavision camera in and you could rotate it and it'll basically made for uh, a crane shot and you could go 360 and spin it around. And, and so uh, the, the, in the Panavision camera, your eyepiece, there's a pellicle inside that takes it from the eyepiece and it shifts the image into the, into the mirror that's in, in the camera. And if you do it right, you can usually, 
when the cameraman or the first assistant puts the, the uh, loads of film back in, sometimes that pellicle slips and I go to, you go to look through the eyepiece and it's upside down. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. You, you take the eyepiece and you move it 90 degrees back and forth. The pellicle resets itself. And now you look through the eyepiece and it's right side up. So why don't we use that? and I'll just operate the camera and we'll change the pellicle and it'll be basically the same and I'll shoot it up upside down. But I'm looking at it right side up through the, through the through mirror system. And halfway, not even halfway, I forgot, we, we did about three or four takes with, with the, uh, Johnny Anderson. Yeah, that, I think that's a really great guy. Uh, the one who learned to speak backwards in high school. Uh, he's dancing backwards but the shot starts with we everybody had the, and David said everybody everybody he said everybody listen you're gonna have to think backwards and and stay thinking backwards and which was designed for me I think because we start it starts off with him in the chair when you play it forward Anderson gets out of the chair and he walks across and he dances and the camera pans off that and goes to Laura walking over and giving Kyle a kiss and then whispering in his ear. So we start with the kiss and do everything backwards. And so I start with the kiss, pan over, go off that, find, find Anderson in the corner with the strobe light going and then follow him backwards uh, uh, going and sitting in a chair after he says, let's rock or something. And, and uh, so I'm kind of getting that down in the pacing stuff and the Helical somehow sticks and I can't reshift it. So I had to literally stand upside down and look through the eyepiece as I was operating for it. I said, oh, I'll operate. And, and uh, uh, so I'm upside down operating on the wheels, the shot, for about 20 times. And it was, it was, uh, so we, we, we get this, we get this shot, then it finally. It works out, and and uh, David, but before we even started shooting, David said, "I want the cur those red curtains really glowing." And I really, he didn't tell me any of this stuff before I went over there, or, or otherwise I would have ordered this equipment. And I went, and they were really thick red curtains. And I said, "Wow, I don't know if I have enough light to glow these these curtains." And. Uh, uh, he said, well, let's go get some. And I, I think it was a weekday because we dropped everything and waited, sent, sent the, the key, uh, 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 gaffer, uh, key best boy, to go out and get some more lights. So I get, I think I, they were 10Ks or 5Ks. I can't remember, probably 10Ks. And they, they um, 10K tungsten for now. And so I get this glow that he wanted. Then we, we do a scene and he goes, no, no, no. I gotta have a bright, Ron, I gotta have a bright light, like a, a circle of light hitting the curtains and then moving through the curtains. And I went, what? How am I gonna do? I've got 10Ks pounding these red, these red curtains, and which is pretty bright. I said, what am I gonna, what light can I get that's going to be brighter than a 10K? I said, well, I guess I have to get a super trooper. And by, by then it was like getting toward evening. 
And uh, I said, I said, David, I don't think I can do it because we, I, I don't have that light here. He said, well, well, maybe you can get the light, Ron. <laughs> so we called frantically, and I forgot who we were renting from that had a super trooper, and uh, which is the, for those who don't know what a super trooper is, it's the stage light that's 100 feet away at a stadium or uh, 500 feet away from a stadium, and this light shoots down. It's almost arc, I think. I don't even remember what a super trooper is, but it's very bright, and it focuses, so it's it's like a, a giant ellipsoidal light. So we they're open, and we all just hang around talking and waiting for the super trooper to get there. And we put the super trooper in there, and here's this bright light going through there. So I'm feeling pretty proud of myself. Well, wait, I got that worked out. And he said, and he's looking at, at, the, at the set, and he's going, Ron, do you think you can put a bird in the middle of that, <laughs> that circle? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went, what, a bird? He said, yeah, a shadow of a bird. And it'll go through the... So we, I, I forgot how we did this. We figured out, we, we cut out a bird shape, put it on string, I think, and put it on, and had two guys holding it or on C-stand arms holding the cord that held the, the bird. And you know those 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 things you buy in in uh, Chinatown or any the souvenir things where you they got a picture of a bird and a picture of a cage. Mm -hmm. On one side's the cage, the other side's the bird. And then you take the string and you turn it, and then all of a sudden the bird's in the cage. Well, I thought about that concept. Let's do that. Let's just put it out, and then we can hold it. And we had to literally kind of, they had to move in sync to keep that bird in the, in the, the circle of light going through this, this curtain. And as it went, as the shadow went through the curtain, it looked like the bird was, was flying. But David already knew that. I wasn't even thinking about that. And so that's where the 20 hours went. <laughs> So you didn't do the series, uh, but you did do the feature film, which we don't need to go into too much because there's actually a great article. There's a great American cinematographer article uh, on Fire Walk with Me by Steve Pizzello that people can probably find online or at the library or whatever. So I'd sort of steer people towards that. But I did want to ask a little bit about it because I think that movie is just a masterpiece. And I think it really looks forward to a lot of what Lynch was going to do, that whole cycle of movies like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway and Inland Empire. They all, I feel like Fire Walk With Me really kind of kicks that phase off. And um, I was wondering if, was that a surprise to you when he came to you about doing that? Did you have any idea he was planning a theatrical feature film? Um, no, I thought it was just going to stay the pilot, the pilot and end of the series and however long the series lasted. There were rumors at toward two, three years later after the pilot that they were thinking about a feature. And I think there were critics who were against it, uh, saying you can't make this a, a feature. It's a television venue kind of thing. And uh, I was more surprised that when we did finish the feature and it went to Ken, I was thinking, boy, this is Blue Velvet, got the 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 calm door and i'm gonna i'm gonna be famous i'm gonna have a film that that won the film festival and it was booed out of the theater and i my heart just sank and not not only for me for david and all the other people that really worked really hard on that film especially cheryl lee i've uh, never seen 
an actress go through so much torment and torture within her own persona to get Laura Palmer out. And we all were feeling sorry for her because she was a wreck by the time we, we finished that, that film. Uh, and unfortunately that I think, I don't know if it was David's design, but we did, I believe we did her murder in the train, the nighttime train sequence uh, last or toward the end because she really put it out there. I think she had to go rest somewhere for a very long time to get, get it because she, as an actor does, gets really into their own self and, and it's a lot of hard work and, and, and doing it all day long every day and this torture and, and being in that kind of a scene is pretty devastating to any actor. And she was a trooper and she, I thought that she should have gotten nominated for that show as an actress and, and uh, never happened. It was just too critically booed. Uh, everybody was disappointed. And, and I, that, that movie was so hard when I saw, got the, got the, we were timing it. When we were timing it, that was one thing. But then when I was away from it, even during the scenes when I was shooting them, it reminded me I was doing a blue velvet. And there was some stuff there that was that that didn't set well with me, and it didn't set well with a lot of people. But that's what it was designed to do, and no one wanted to look at that kind of intimate horror of of child abuse and and uh, the, uh, the the why someone like that would go into drugs just to get released from that kind of horror, uh, and along with David's thing of beings traveling through electricity and all this all this other stuff on top of it so it's really unique i could not finish the feature because i don't think i got i saw this went to the screening of the answer print but there was just the answer print there was no dialogue music and all the other stuff in it and the the and all this horrible screaming and stuff. so uh when I finally sat down a few years later on the, on the DVD that David sent me when, they, when we timed the DVD, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't finish it. Like, I couldn't finish Blue Velvet. I think it took 10 years for me to sit down and watch it as somebody else would watch it because it had been enough time for my feeble brain to forget about all this stuff. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I just went, I told somebody, I said, it was, it was the, the best anti-drug, anti-child abuse statement that I'd ever seen on, on any of whether documentary or film. Uh, it was, it, it, it reached deep into a lot of people and it resonated in the horror. And, and, and I, I agree with a lot of the, of the, if you sit there and you watch it as, as a, an art piece, just as you would a painting from we're all used to Rembrandt and maybe even Van Gogh was um, stronger than Rembrandt, but in a different sense. And you could see when you go to the Rembrandt, uh, Van Gogh uh, or Van Hoff, however you want to pronounce, you go to the museum there in Amsterdam, you you feel the sorrow of of the artist. 
and twin and and then so you're used to kind of a certain kind of art and then now it's just like abstract or or uh caravaggio's paintings holding the the severed head of of i forgot who the, the severed head is but it's gruesome and it's hard to look at but it's still art and the the problem with this country i think looking at films the american populace does not look at film as an art form which they should like in europe and and someday i hope that's all going to change well i think that's a great note to finish on um thanks so much for talking with me ron it was really fun to revisit the series recently on dvd and i hope that this new blu-ray brings a whole new generation of fans to it so uh this has been ron garcia asc and jim hemphill talking about twin peaks This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.